from Revive Stronger. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty sure that most of you listening to this will know who Steve is. So yeah, Steve, thanks for taking the time today. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you for having me on for the third time. I really appreciate it. Uh, I always listen to your podcast. They're always interesting and make me think. So to be a guest is an honor. And yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. As we were saying off air, just getting my act together for Christmas. It's going to be quite a busy one with a lot of family around. But uh, it'd be nice to somewhat relax and turn off a little bit. Um, although I kind of don't like doing that at the same time. But yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah, no, uh, we just uh, touched on this uh, before the call that um, we always tend to be a bit of a procrastinator type when it comes to Christmas shopping. So at least there is something to keep us a bit uh, stressed at this time of the year as well and not be too lax. So yeah, today we have a couple of cool topics that uh, we will want to cover. But um, maybe let's just start with, you know, when I interviewed you the last time, uh, you were already running a coaching business and you were getting ready to a bodybuilding show at the time. Um, and we will talk about some nutrition and training concepts for sure. But first of all, like if you contrast where you are today compared to where you were uh, business-wise and with your coaching practice and with everything that you've got going on, um, would you say that you're more or less at the same place? Or did you have some big changes as to how you organize your business life and what your trajectory is in terms of career path uh, for yourself? Um, so what would you say is the main difference between where you are now and where you were like a year and a half ago? So yeah, it's a, it's a really good question um, because I think a lot has changed probably that I don't realize that has changed, but I don't think it's a consequence of necessarily doing anything unique or anything different. I think it's literally just the process of you're getting more experience, you're growing, you're doing the right things over and over again. And just like in the gym, you accumulate that consistency and that hard work and you get dividends and you get more advanced. And so I think as a coaching company, Revive Stronger is building its name and therefore it's drawing in more people uh, and potentially more of our target audience, which are more so uh, coaches and competitors. So most of the clients we coach now are uh, personal trainers or online coaches themselves, all very well educated uh, and many of them compete now. So I think if you compare this time last year to the number of to now the number of clients we have who are actually competitors. I think I have close to double figures competing next year in my coaching roster. And considering my coaching roster is, I mean, I think I count myself, well, I don't think. I count myself at 40 clients. I've not even ever got to that number. Um, I range between 30 to 40. And yeah, to think I've got double figures of competitors compared to last year where I only had a handful, that's really exciting to me because um, not because I particularly think competitors are better or like anything to do with that. It's just that I think often it's more challenging um, to have a competitor and it's quite exciting. And I think that kind of challenge and that excitement and things makes me work harder as a coach and learn new things. And um, it's much a discovery. So that's really exciting. And then obviously, I think Previously, we had uh, obviously Pascal um, and Pascal has now got more clients than he had previously. He's now kind of topped off in that regard because he kind of finalized a lot of educational things and uh, was able to take on more people. So it's really nice to have him also at a really good range of clientele. And then we also brought on Miguel, who I don't think we had on at the time, who now has a handful of clients as well. So we're able to reach more people, um, reach more people via our coaching service and reach more people probably via the podcast. And I say probably and kind of slightly laughing because I feel like I should really know the analytics on that end. Um, and you might be surprised to hear that I really don't look into that. Um, probably a time component and also just a lack of knowing exactly how to even do that. 
Um, Charlotte still, my girlfriend, takes care of all of the uploads to SoundCloud and to all the uh, podcast providers. So I actually don't get much of a look in, especially because Pascal does all the editing and the uploads there as well. So um, yeah, much of that's taken on my hands. I literally do the interviews and organize those and that's about it. So yeah, the, the business is thriving. Um, we have some exciting things happening next year. Me and Pascal are doing a seminar, uh, a coaching, um, online coaching seminar, kind of how to how we got into online coaching, how to run the business, that sort of thing, kind of helping other trainees get into it and also improve their services for the first time next year. So that's super exciting. We bring over Mike and a ton of the other crew. Uh, this is maybe the first time I've ever said that on a podcast or released it, uh, but we have arranged a bigger better seminar than ever with Mike and some other of the RP crew, uh, more than just Jared this time. And then there are some other seminars that we're working on. I can probably say this, um, one with Cliff and Valentin. Um, they're here be coming on to London and we'll be doing a seminar with them. So that's very exciting. So yeah, it's just a case of doing the same work, learning all the time, um, how to improve things about our coaching business. Things crop up and you just are like, oh, how do we deal with this situation? Like Pascal's ill. How do we go about actually informing our clients that maybe he can't do a video check-in? Um, and like maybe we need to think about having that implemented in the contracts. Like we're still a, a young business in that regard and we don't have everything perfectly set up, but it is getting towards perfection. We're always driving towards that. And um, I think it's just a consequence of, yeah, consistent hard work and effort. And it just keeps building into the right direction. So yeah, the main changes are we're just uh, reaching a bigger audience that are more so our target audience and uh, that's allowing us to just get get better and better. I think. Awesome. So let's. Um, okay. So so first of all, you mentioned that uh, now that not a lot has changed. But one thing that I recall when I first talked to you online is that at the time you said that your main niche is taking intermediate guys and taking them to the advanced level. So. Um, I'm assuming that it was roughly somewhere around that time that you made the shift to really niche down on coaching competitors. Was that like a pivotal moment when that happened or that just developed gradually and very organically? Yeah, I think that's that's a good, uh, thank you for reminding me of that because that is definitely where I positioned myself initially. And I guess that comes with my own development as a trainee. I think you tend to attract people like yourself, not just in personality, but also in development. I think it's probably rare to see very advanced elite bodybuilders being with a guy that's been training for a few years, even if they're one of the most knowledgeable people ever. Um, and I think that's a good thing to be aware of, as well as someone who is trying to attract competitors or coaching people in general, like you attract people that are similar to you, that you're not going to attract someone who's massively more developed than you are, because there's just a something not quite there in terms of psychology and kind of acceptance in that um, kind of having someone coach you who is maybe of less of a de development to you. So I think that's part of it. Uh, but also the fact that I think as the business has grown, we're able to attract people who are willing to probably expend more money. Um, initially, I started coaching kind of those younger people, the intermediates to kind of bring them a bit more advanced uh, because of the fact that those are the people I was kind of surrounded by. Uh, I was initially growing the business through word of mouth, uh, friends, friends of friends. And it's funny to think actually a lot of my clients used to be people who I either went to school with or I trained at my local gym with. And now I don't coach so many of them. They kind of fell by the wayside. And as we've grown, um, kind of I've attracted a more... I guess you might call premium customer um, who's willing to pay for that little bit extra. And they tend to be the people that are very invested in their results, which are coaches, PTs, 
and then competitors. So I, I guess that's where the transition has come from. Absolutely. So I want to uh, touch a little bit on the structure of how you run Revive Stronger. So um, from, what, from what I can see, basically, you have your, your coaching uh, business, which is actually the, the lifeblood of your business. And then you have a couple of ways to generate traffic. So uh, you have your Instagram page, which I can see is really big, over 30,000 people uh, following you, which is pretty massive. Uh, then you have your YouTube channel and the podcast. You also post things on Facebook. You have a Facebook group. So would you say you have a main source of driving traffic when you're strategizing as to how you're going to accumulate more and more clients and get more and more attention from the industry? Do you have like uh, one specific focus where you're diverting most of your attention or it's kind of in a freestyled manner and you're just putting some attention everywhere and you're just seeing what's going to grow the most over time? Again, yeah, great question. Um, it is a combination of that. Uh, it made me smile when you say like just a, a free throw, you just throw something out, see where it sticks. And I think there's definitely an element of that to the way I do things at least, uh, because I am maybe a bit more fleeting than Pascal. Pascal is very good at what he's good at and enjoys what he enjoys and he gets jobs done. And I love that about him something about German efficiency there. Whereas I'm a bit more airy fairy. I go into different projects and kind of do different things in different social media platforms. And I may be a bit more of that kind of social person, um, which I think that combination between us works really well. And we are business partners. So whilst I think on the, the face of it, it looks like I do a lot and Pascal is maybe doing less. He does a lot of behind the scenes things with graphic production and video editing, with the podcast editing, all of that sort of thing. He's doing a lot of kind of the backbone business. Um, and that leaves me to do what I'm good at um, and do more of the social stuff. And that is what we tend to do is kind of rely on one another's strengths to keep the business kind of growing and moving in the direction that we want it to. And the only real indication of where we know we're getting the best traffic, um, and the thing you alluded to is, yeah, the, the lifeblood of our business, where we get our income, and we would not have a, an income if we didn't do coaching, which is something we do want to address in future probably, is try and find some um, kind of income streams that don't rely on so much of our time, um, and hopefully help more people as well, because you can only coach a num certain number of people. If we were to, if I was to go over that 40 cap, it might quality of coaching would just go down the drain. It just wouldn't be good. I wouldn't enjoy it as much and I just wouldn't get the sort of quality out there and the results, again, wouldn't show themselves. So it's important in that regard. So yeah, in terms of where we know we're getting the best kind of traffic and where to focus attention, on our sign-up form, uh, we kind of have a document that just asks, like, where did you hear about us? So this just says, did you hear from us the podcast, YouTube, or are you finding us over on Instagram, friends and family? Where did you find about us? And uh, consistently, and actually recently, it's been very Instagram heavy. Uh, it had always been split between Instagram and the podcast pretty much. You get a few from Facebook, but relatively saying it's mostly from Instagram and the podcast. And that's where we tend to focus our attention uh, for the most part right now. And part of that is, yeah, it makes sense because we're getting some positive feedback there and they're growing really well. But also it's a case of we really enjoy those channels. Uh, I really enjoy being on podcasts and interviewing people. And it's been a consistent thing that's just allowed us to grow Something I love about the podcast is introducing different guests to different guests. I uh, recently had an interview with uh, Dr. Scott Stevenson and Dr. Mike Isretel, both super smart, really humble guys. Never had they spoken before. And then it's a kind of really cool thing for me to be able to introduce them. So completely outside of any kind of uh, passion, apart from I just enjoy that aspect of being able to spend time doing that. Uh, but also, yeah, Instagram, I just really enjoy being on the story, answering questions 
and they seem to be good growth channels for us as well. So yeah, that's that's where we tend to focus on. We do have, like you said, Miguel's writing blog posts for us. I think they're always going to be helpful um, just to have that written form and have people to be able to refer to those. And it gets Miguel's name out there and that gets him to focus on his skill set, which we believe is written content. We think he's fantastic at that, really going into depth on some topics and using his great ability to read research and then display that to the layperson. I think that's fantastic. Uh, and then we focus on obviously YouTube content and the, the podcast and also on Instagram for the most part. The Facebook group is something we did try and focus on for a bit, but it's one of those where we dip in and out of it. It's not really taking a lot of our kind of attention at the moment. And then we do have an email list, which I had grown. I think we've got it to two and a half thousand now, which isn't too bad. I don't really know where Instagram, where uh, email lists lie in terms of like what numbers are good and what are bad. Uh, but we just kind of put out stuff there now and then like once a week to get questions for the podcast and things. But yeah, we're mostly focusing on Instagram and uh, YouTube because they seem to be the areas where we're getting most of our clientele from. Right. A question, somewhat self-serving question, but how do you, do you have a system for coming up with guests and podcast ideas? Like, do you have a... Um like a catalog, an idea catalog or idea inventory when you're uh, pulling from, when you're looking for new people to reach out. And then a follow-up question, which maybe you can address in your answer is, um, are you batch recording a lot of interviews? Like, do you have days when you're trying to schedule a lot of interviews so that you don't have to make room for them in your schedule all the time? Uh, like, what's your system for these? Cool. I think that would be really smart to have both of those in place. Uh, I don't know if it would maybe hamper your creativity or your ability to get on certain guests, but um, it's not a system I currently have in place. I think Pascal would probably really like that. Um, and we have had a list of kind of people that we're thinking to bring on, but it doesn't always quite work out like that. Um, sometimes it is maybe uh, there's been some studies that are released that Brad's recently done. And so we want to put on the podcast and have a chat with him. Or it might just be someone hasn't been on for a while and so we're going to bring them back on and kind of have some questions uh, thrown at them. Or it might just be someone that I've seen through someone I follow who maybe has a slightly different audience to me who I find really interesting. That's kind of how I came across uh, Dr. Scott Stevenson was some of my friends who follow different people in the industry were kind of referencing him and saying he was on this other podcast. And so I came across his work and that was really interesting to me because the first guests I got on the podcast were all people that I'd been following for years. I bought their maybe eBooks, been to conferences that they'd been at. And this is how I had any kind of way of actually connecting with them and influencing them to almost come on the podcast, which isn't actually, it's surprising how easy it is to convince people to come on the podcast. You don't, most people that you and myself are interviewing are very, very happy to come on and kind of have that free um, ability to reach a larger audience. And now the podcast, Revive Stronger Podcast is at quite a large size I think that helps us attract an even greater potential person but in reality I'm only really interested in people that I view and I see other people view as being someone you can almost trust um, being someone who's very much kind of that I hate the term like evidence-based but has that evidence-based kind of nous about them gets clients results um, and have maybe been a researcher or um, someone who uh, lectures or has had tremendous results themselves. This is kind of the type of person that we're bringing on. And that's how we tend to scope them out and bring them on. And I don't necessarily like have a catalogue that I'm looking for and trying to find people to bring on because I've said this to Pascal before. There's been maybe a, an occasion 
here or there where I've brought on a guest who I potentially don't know very much about or don't know them very well and I've not talked to them a great deal online or maybe never before and I get quite uncomfortable in those sort of interviews. Uh, they aren't the best produced in my opinion. The best ones I produce are with guests who I have a really good rapport with and who I know their stuff and we can then have really great conversations. And so that's who I tend to rely on more so. And so if there is someone I'm scoping out to bring on the podcast, I will make sure I am aware of their work and have been following them for a period of time because it's nothing worse than kind of being embarrassed because you just don't really know anything about this person and they don't lead to the most productive podcasts. And whilst it might be good for the podcast in general of just having a greater variety of guests on, I think we're better served interviewing people we really know a lot about uh, rather than just the, just anyone in the field. So that's how I tend to do it. And then in terms of batching content, I, we don't. Um, it's a case of uh, I fit in podcasts when I can. I have a very reg regular schedule through the week. Um, I don't do a lot in the evenings. Um, I kind of have my training windows every single day, five days a week. And I know when I'm free and I know when I'm not free. So for the most part, I fit people around that. And that seems to work really well. Uh, it never seems to be an issue where I, I can't get someone interviewed because of it being a really peculiar time. Um, if it is, then I will make adjustments to my schedule to make sure that I can get it done. But a lot of the time it's people over in America. So I just interview them um, kind of in the evening and that seems to work really well in their daytime. So that's really nice. Um, I think it would probably hamper content production to have like batch days where I interview people on a certain day. Um, I think maybe Joe Rogan could do that because he probably has like the draw. So people would change their schedule to fit in with him. But I'm generally having to be very flexible to fit in with other people's schedules, which sometimes isn't optimal for sleep and things like this. But um, I absolutely love it. And I'm sure you're the same about. But yeah, that's how it tends to go. It is fairly ad hoc. There is some sort of backbone structure and thought behind everything. Um, but for the most part, it is a bit it's quite flexible. Awesome. My last question, which is not training or nutrition related, but you just mentioned that you have a very regular schedule. And I am very interested in schedules, uh, mainly because if, when someone's doing something entrepreneurial, uh, typically you have to do a lot of different things which require tapping into your different modes of energy. So some type of content requires some creative energy, even, you know, putting out an Instagram post. Uh, the kinds of posts that you put out have long descriptions and you need to have some sort of creativity, uh, free-flowing creativity to tap into when you're putting something like that out. Uh, on the other hand, I'm imagining when you're updating the the training sheet of a client, for example, that's more of a me mechanical type of thing that you can just put on autopilot. You more or less know how to do it um, without too much thinking. Um, so how do you like to schedule? Like maybe let's just go through like how does a typical day in your life look like? And then how do you schedule different forms of work? So yeah, how, how do you go about these things? Okay, so yeah, I uh, I have pretty much the same structure Monday through Friday. Uh, I don't work as best I can on weekends. Um, that's partly due to like people who I socialize with don't work weekends, so I want to be social somewhat. So I I am with them, and also my girlfriend doesn't work weekends. She works a nine till five, which also influences when I work. In that I try not to be working when she's home, um, which she tends to get home kind of like seven eight p.m. After that, I try and switch off. So that's kind of the backbone. Uh, I get up and immediately go to work. So I tend to go to bed at 10, 10.30, and I wake at about 7 a.m. Uh, first thing in the morning, I'm kind of just getting ready. And I, I actually typically go straight onto Instagram and answer any kind of like DMs I've got there. And um, my posts from the day before, I get back to any kind of comments there. And I just try and kind of wipe the slate clean with Instagram as such. 
probably a bad habit in some ways, but I really hate having notifications and anything kind of lying over me. Uh, it's a bit, bad, a bit of a bad habit because it puts me in some situations where I'm replying to those when I should be focusing on other things, uh, which, yeah, it, it is what it is. Um, but then I go straight to work. So the first thing in the morning, I'm listening to all of my client check-ins. So I tend to have like 10 clients a day at most. Their video check-ins are five. I mean, sometimes they're up to 20 minutes long, but normally they're five to 10 minutes in length. So I'm listening to all of those. And, uh, and this is great because whilst I'm not kind of my most alert from first thing in the morning, uh, the, the videos I'm alert enough to listen to those, make notes, which is fantastic for me because then it gives me a, a good hour where I'm listening to those to kind of wake up, get alert. And at that time, I'm also like eating my breakfast. And then once I've listened to those, it takes me about another hour to then kind of use their notes to then make adjustments to the program. Again, this is me waking up. This is me kind of you know, getting into autopilot. And like you, you correctly said, this is the easy work, really listening to the videos, making notes, and then making programming adjustments. After that, the next kind of hour and hour and a half where I'm recording videos, that is probably the most tiring part of my day. Um, especially when I've got a, a lot of videos and potentially sometimes my feedback videos can be, again, five to 10 minutes in length, potentially longer than that sometimes. And it, 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 that is by far the most tiring part of my job. I love it the most as well, but when you have a lot of people asking lots of questions and you're having to think about a lot of things, that can really wipe you out sometimes. So uh, I have relied on like coffees or um, De Novo's Utopia I find is fantastic for this sort of work because it just gets you focused and you can really kind of get them out. But I find by going through this process of very kind of focused on listening to all the videos, writing all the notes, going through all the programs, writing all the adjustments, and then recording all the videos and replying, this is the best way to kind of chunk my tasks together and get them done in the most productive way possible. So then I send out the video replies. And then after that, I am off to the gym. Um, this is my AM workout. So these workouts typically last 30 minutes up to an hour, depending on the workout, depending on um, what muscle group I'm training. And then I'll become straight home, eat. And then I've basically got a chunk of like four hours or three to four hours where I either have podcast put in, such as this one that we've scheduled, um, where I am either interviewed or someone else I'm interviewing for our podcast, where I'm doing kind of ad hoc work, whether it's graphic production, infographic production, um, answering client emails, because oftentimes the clients will have come back to me by now, or other clients will have asked questions from previous check-in days, and also going into Facebook, focusing on the Team Revive Facebook group that we have for our clients, where we generally have feedback videos um, every single day in terms of form. Uh, our, we get our clients to chuck in their form videos, relative intensity, so we can check on all of that. Normally, there's a handful to get to every single day, so it's assessing those, which again, take time. Um, and during this time, this is when I get my Instagram uh, post done as well. So I tend to post this every single day between three and four, and this is when yeah, it, it can be really tricky some days to get a good message across. But typically I'm focusing on things that I've done during the day um, that I've listened to from my client feedback or that I've seen in the, on Facebook in our Facebook group that questions that have been asked. And I try and find something that's very relatable um, to that audience because generally that is the audience that I'm trying to appeal to with what I'm posting. So that's where I do that kind of, I gather that kind of through my day so I can post something that's very thought out on that particular day, I don't kind of generate all my social media content on one day and then just schedule it and post it. It's always a unique post 
every day unless it's a previous infographic where I just recycle it, which I think is fine for people to do. Um, people love being reminded of some of the core principles all the time. So then after that, I go to the gym again for my PM workout, which is typically between 4.30 and 5.30. I try and get in there before 5 because that's when the gym starts getting rammed again. Then again, this is a 30-minute to like 45-minute workout, maybe up to an hour sometimes. So I get that PM session done, come home, and again, it's a case of I potentially have an interview on a podcast. That quite often is a good time in my evening. A lot of the guys over in the US, that's that's when I like to do it with them. Mike always does them at that time. Um, or I'm kind of coming back and I'm, again, replying to Instagram comments, I'm replying to Facebook messages, emails. This is a lot of kind of social media work. Um, and then if there are any client emails, again, if they've come through, that's when I reply to those. And then basically from dinner onwards, that's when I switch off. So that's probably from about 8 p.m. till, again, 10.30. This is free time for me. I try not to go on Instagram too much, if at all. I don't get my laptop out. Uh, this is me and Charlotte time, as it were, to kind of cool down from the day and then switch off and, again, go and repeat the exact same thing again. Awesome. That was uh, that was a great rundown. Thank you for that. <clears throat> and, okay, perhaps one last thing... Um which I'm, I'm always interested in um, how other people experience this. But did you have, I mean, now you're very active on Instagram. And if someone scrolls through your, your platform, then you will see a lot of training videos and uh, pictures of you flexing and showing um, your progress. Did you have at any point kind of an insecurity about that? Not necessarily towards the industry, but in terms of maybe if an old high school friend or someone that you've known before, or maybe someone who doesn't really know what you're doing would see these pictures, you would be a bit embarrassed in front of those people. Like, did you have this at any time, which made you hesitant about posting certain things? Um, was this a struggle at any point or is it just me who has this kind of neurosis? I think that's a really funny question, actually, um, because when you instantly said that, it made me think of what my nickname was when I first joined. And I didn't know of this nickname initially. It was kept from me, but it was a nickname that I got when I joined my job that I did in London, um, which I did for two years before I then transitioned to become a personal trainer. And this was people had kind of, I was interviewed and they'd see my, I had a website at the time where I was blogging and I'd had some photos of me um, and I had my YouTube channel linked on there where I had some old content of me kind of flexing and such. Uh, and I wasn't in the best shape back then. I'm, I'm in okay shape now, or well, pretty good shape compared to the average and okay shape compared to industry average. And yeah, the nickname was Pantsman. Um, and I didn't really hear of that until I was more kind of uh, in the social circle and things. And yeah, my nickname was Pantsman, which is hilarious. And if I had known that, I think I would have found it really embarrassing. It would have held me back quite a lot. And but apart from that instance, it's never really been something that I've thought much of. I think when you do overthink it or when you think about it quite a lot and when you say that to me there, it is kind of like, that's really kind of strange. But it might have been because I bodybuild and I've competed and I've been on stage and part and parcel of that process is being in very skimpy underwear and showing off everything. So you're basically bare to, to, to the world, as bare as you can be. You shave every part, like every crevice of your body. You're getting rid of every little bit of body fat you can and you're showing everything you've got. And since doing that, I kind of become a bit numb to it. The funny thing is I still get embarrassed if people kind of, like if I'm in a social occasion and someone comes up to me like, Steve, you've got massive arms and they're like, squeeze my arms. I still get 
like like really really embarrassed or if someone's like oh lift up your t-shirt i want to see your abs and i'm just like no i'm not doing that but it get me to go in a bathroom take a photo i'm happy to upload it onto instagram and see thousands of people see it people who i know and don't kind of ever speak to see it i don't even care it's kind of a bit of a strange one um, but it's definitely nothing i've ever been embarrassed about until people really bring it to my attention and for the most part people don't uh, i don't know if i answered your question very well but i do know what you talk to is something that I know Pascal struggles with and I know is like something a lot of people struggle with, but I think I just kind of embraced my bodybuilder and uh, kind of shrug it off for a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, and I think being an actual competitor, an actual athlete definitely helps with that side of the things. Yeah, I, I guess it's different when you're just an, an influencer and you're just a fitness personality as opposed to being an athlete who just happens to show off his muscles. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So. All right, cool, man. So we spent half an hour talking about not training and nutrition, uh, which I guess uh, the listeners are used to at this point. But the first thing I want to talk about is scrolling through your Instagram and seeing pictures of you this year and the past year as well. It's pretty evident that you made some serious gains, like a lot more impressive gains than a lot of intermediate plus, you know, advanced people will make. First of all, would you would you agree with the fact that you made some serious gains ever since um like in the last two years or so, because I mean, two years ago, probably you would agree that you've already been at least at the intermediate late stage, intermediate stages as a lifter. So would you agree with the fact that you made some serious progress in terms of muscle mass gains? So I think uh, I'd say thank you. And I, I never like to say, yes, I think I have, because it's always in the back of my mind. Like, what if I haven't? I think all bodybuilders are like that. We never want to be like, oh, yeah, I've made amazing gains. Or at least I don't. I, I'm very much like, yeah, I think they're okay. Uh, hopefully I've gained like a pound of muscle here or there. But when I really honestly look at myself and I look in the mirror and I'm like, Steve, you've, you've had to throw away a lot of your old clothes because they no longer fit. You've moved from a medium to a large, a legit large now. In some clothes, I have to wear an extra large. And you're as lean at kind of 190 pounds as maybe you were even as lean as what you were at 180 pounds a couple of years ago. So I'd agree with your assessment that I've definitely made some really big improvements and better than I have in previous off seasons, which is interesting because like you said, I was an intermediate, maybe, I don't know, late intermediate. It's very difficult to completely know on that. Um, but as you get more advanced, you generally see less results. I think the biggest difference, at least for me, is that it, in my off season between 2017 to 2000, uh, 2014 to 17, this is when I was probably, I was self-coaching that whole time. And I was really not completely sure where I wanted to go with things. I was hearing a lot of things. I was not very sure of myself. I was a bit conflicted in what I wanted to do. And I struggled with it. I really did. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go down the powerlifting route. I was very much focusing on trying to be a, a power builder and struggling with that. And it wasn't a program or system that worked for me. I was under the impression and focused too much on P ratios and too much on staying lean and not going too far away from my stage weight. And I was coming out of that. I think the, the competition season in 2014 hit me quite hard. I'd come down from 190 pounds to below 160. So I'd lost over 30 pounds in that period of time. My stage weight was like just above 160 pounds carved up. So it was kind of a bit like, wow, I thought I, I didn't think I'd need to lose so much weight. I'm a bit scared to let my weight go up. And so in that whole off season, I was struggling with this power builder mentality where I wasn't really making strength gains. I wasn't really making hypertrophy gains. I wasn't as well educated as I thought I was. And I didn't really understand the fundamental basics and principles of things anywhere near to the degree that I understand them now. 
So it was very much in this kind of wishy-washy period, um, which didn't lead to great results. And again, I, I handicapped my off-season by making um, sure I didn't go much above 180 pounds, which is like, what, 20 pounds above stage weight, which is not really that much. And it was actually less than 20 pounds above stage weight. So there was a lot of kind of stagnation in that period of time versus this off season where I learned so, so much in the years of like my contest prep and the period before that. And I learned so much about the fundamental principles and I, I absolutely have to give uh, credit to Mike Israel for that because he cemented a lot of those ideas in my mind with only discussing with him, consulting with him, having him over for seminars. I was very much influenced by him by large degree. And also through the scientific principles of strength training by himself, Chad Wesley Smith and James Hoffman, a fantastic textbook that just put a lot of the knowledge that I had in my head into a really kind of cemented system and a, a good understanding where I was actually like, ah, oh, like that's why that program works. That's why that program works. And I've understood it more and more as I've done it myself and I've developed programs myself. And so I've got to a point now where I'm much more confident in what I'm doing. I have much more specificity in what I'm doing. And I'm much more assertive than I've ever been in terms of allowing my body weight to go up, really not caring too much about body fat percentage, keeping it moderate, of course, not kind of just getting uh, folked, um, fat bulked. And um, that's really the biggest difference for me, having that kind of more knowledge, more understanding, greater specificity, and really having a direction with everything. And I think I formulated a lot of that during my contest prep, I think I made actually probably some progress in muscle growth during my first stage of contest prep before I then maintained and dug into shows. And now because I had all that foundation built up, it's just made my off season so productive to date. And I just hope it keeps going that way, but I have a, a feeling it, it may slow down, um, but I'm excited for what's to come because I it really, for me, made me realize how important for some people how important specificity really is because I think some people can get away with a bit less of that but others if they really really want to drive results they really want to get to that advanced level and make progress during that period of time they have to almost get a little bit kind of ultra specific which for some people isn't where they ever want to go and maybe they will never get to that really level of advancement and some other people maybe they never need that level of specificity because potentially genetics or some other, I don't want to just throw out genetics as if that's the, the rule of thumb, but some people just don't need to go to that to that point. But um, once I went all in, um, I just saw so many more results. Awesome. So so let's uh, talk about the eating side of things first. So first of all, like how, how aggressively do you allow yourself to go into a surplus uh, during your off season? And then I, I know from kind of following you and uh, your approach that you like to do some mini cuts um, interspersed here and there. So first of all, like how big of a surplus are we talking about? How much weight are you allowing yourself to gain in sort of we uh, weekly, monthly basis? And then how long do you go at any one time in a in an uninterrupted surplus before you um, fit in a mini cut here and there? Yeah, you're completely right. Um, I do intersperse mini cuts. And in terms of rate of weight gain, I have generally aimed for, and I think it may be for people that follow me on Instagram, they probably think I have, like I know exactly how much weight I've gained over the last like, even I don't even know how much weight I've gained over the last month, let alone the last like couple of weeks, um, because I don't focus on it as much as maybe it comes across. 
I do look at the scale every single day. I do take a picture and write a little bit of gratitude, but I save it down and then maybe once a month I put it into a spreadsheet. And for the most part, I'm just looking to see that number slowly trickle up. And in my head, I'm thinking I want to be gaining around half a percent to a percentage per week. But a daily number doesn't matter. It's that long-term average. So if I'm seeing a lot of kind of fluctuations up and down, like I know that 193 and then 190, yeah, I'm middling that. Um, if I'm consistently seeing, okay, I've just stalled out at this weight for quite a while, I'm going to just increase calories a little bit by 100. So I'm, I am aiming for that 0.5 to 1% of body weight gain per two weeks. I say two weeks because I think assessing it any more frequently that than that is going to be very, very difficult. So over the course of a month, um, I'm aiming to gain kind of, yeah, a 1% to 2% of body weight over that period of time normally closer to the the 1% than the 2% um, for the most part. I'll be lucky to gain more than that. I tend to still be, I'm still on that kind of fat phobic side where I wouldn't want to push harder than that. And I don't think realistically it makes sense to push more than that. I don't think we have enough data to support pushing kind of very aggressively in terms of body weight, but I'm definitely more on the assertive side than conservative side for the most part. Um, I think people who handicap themselves to gain a pound per month I really find that difficult to really know that you're gaining and I prefer to be in the knowledge that I'm in a surplus and I'm really, really gaining um, and I can always pull back and I prefer this more, um, you may end up pushing for a shorter period of time, your body weight up and then have to pull down, but I prefer that approach to the very slow gaining and then pull back very, very sparingly just because my past experience of doing that hasn't been very fruitful and I found actually purposely being like, you have a timeline of this period of time, It might be three to four months where you're actually gaining weight. And then after that, Steve, you're pulling back and you're going to maintain. And it's kind of like when you have a deadline there, when you have something like that, it's like, I don't at all waste any time. I don't want to spend time spinning my wheels. And for myself and for clients, it's been a game changer because people have actually then embraced seeing the scale go up. Whereas I think of a lot of the old mentality of really just... Oh, you don't need much of a surplus. You can just maybe maintain and gain some, like, uh, gain some muscle. I think that led to a lot of people being a bit less, pushing, putting less emphasis on their recovery, less emphasis on the training, getting poorer results, or at least much, much slower results via taking that approach. Whereas when you have, yeah, that deadline, that timeline, it seems to be more fruitful, at least in my experience. Um, and then when you are working with clients online, you need to give them results in kind of a, a, a time span. So if you are just like, yeah, we're just going to get maintenance. We're just going to some like train hard and we're just, yeah, results will come. You, you might not see them kind of after like three months, maybe you'll see something. And it's a hard sell online. Um, not saying I think that's the optimal approach. I just think I'd find that difficult to sell to some of my client base. And obviously I'm not doing that myself, which again is a hard sell when you're not practicing what you preach. So in terms of then how long would I go gaining before a mini cut? I think from the outside in, a lot of people view mini cuts as just a tool to reduce body fat. Uh, and that certainly is a really big part of what mini cuts are to keep you in kind of a range of body fat. So you're not too far away from stage weight as a competitor and you're not too far away from where you're comfortable as just a general person and you're healthy and potentially you've improved some P ratios and things like this and you've made yourself a little bit more insulin gen- uh, insulin sensitive and that sort of thing. But the second role and important thing that I use mini cuts for is I see there is kind of like Mike has his volume, you incrementally push it up, you get some kind of adaptive resistance build up, um, you might call it anabolic resistance. And you just basically get to a point where you're like, my volume is 
at a point where I, ju- I just need a break from volume. It's really, really just a bit unsustainable right now. And so rather than just taking a period of time at maintenance, I then will put in a mini cut because it's like, well, we're going to pull back volume a little bit anyway. We can go into somewhat of a, an aggressive uh, diet and just pull back training volume somewhat, pull back body fats a little bit, and then go forward. Now, I am not 100% sold on mini cuts for everyone at all. I think they should be used sparingly and not with everyone. Some people really do well with them. Other people, they just can't handle them because of lifestyle or they just find that they really get fatigued from it. And that's undercutting what you're trying to do with reducing the training volume, reducing that fatigue. But for me so far, I've done two in this off season and both of them, after doing them, I've just, my physique has ended up looking its all time best. I've seen really good progress within the gym um, and I felt really, really good from it. So for me, they've been a really useful tool. So when you're talking about kind of when do you dot them in, I think it's important to realize each mini cut you do probably buys you less time in that you train and you're building a certain amount of fatigue and you're cleaning some off with the mini cut. Same with body fat, you're building up some body fat, you're cleaning some off, but every single time you're not bringing yourself back to baseline. So you might get like a four to one ratio, then a three to one ratio, and then maybe a two to one ratio. And then you're like, right, I can't mass for a month. (laughs) That just doesn't make any sense to mass for a month and then mini cut. Let's actually just maintain at maybe a peak body weight where you're your biggest ever where you're really muscular, maybe you're pretty high body fat, but then you can cut down, maybe do a 10 week diet period, maintain at that leaner body weight, wipe the slate clean again with training volume, with fatigue, and then push up again. And then you've got a really long off season where you can use these, dot in these mini cuts sparingly to keep you ticking over, keep everything performing really, really well, rather than trying to push through masses of fatigue or push body fat levels to a kind of level that you don't want to be at for whatever reason that might be. So hopefully that kind of explains my approach to using mini cuts and how I like to see scale weight progress. Sweet. So um, yeah, so you, you pointed out that each mini cut buys you less time. So in your recent off season, like what was the long, longest time you went without any mini cuts? And then what was the shortest? Like, was it four months the longest any, th- that you went and then maybe two months the least? Or how did that play out for you? Yeah, I think I went just over four months. Uh, well, out of my, if I take you through actually my, since my show. So after my show, I did about two months of gaining, um, gaining body fat, plenty of body fat uh, and weight. I should have actually gained a bit faster than I did. I kind of took just uh, basically the same approach to my off season as to that post show period, which in hindsight was not a great decision because I was still having many of the things you get when you compete. I had kind of poor sleep food focus, I just wasn't in the best shape. So I should have just basically doubled my probably, somewhere doubled uh, the rate of gain that I was for that post-show period, just kind of like the recovery diet that uh, 3DMJ popularized, which I think is fantastic. Um, After that, I then did go through a maintenance period just because after post-show and then doing, I did quite a high volume massing period for that. I was just in quite a fatigue state generally. So I just pulled back and maintained at this kind of quite a a low level of body fat, but I like to get people to their like low end of their settling point. So they feel pretty good. They feel pretty comfortable, but they're still very lean for the most part, depending on them. So for me, that was pretty damn lean. Uh, And then I went for, yeah, about a four month period before then I had a mini cut pulled back. That mini cut was only three weeks long. Um, So it was really in and out very, very quickly. And it was mostly to bring that that training volume more than anything. My body fat was still in a, a very good position, so I didn't pull back too hard that time. Um, I then went for another three-month period, uh, actually just over three-month period. Um, I tend to do like four to five to one paradigms of accumulation to deload, so it was like a, a three-meso cycle period before pulling back again. Um, that time I did a 
four or five week mini cut. I can't actually remember off the top of my head, but it was a little bit more extended. I had a little bit more body fat um, and I could handle that mini cut actually much better being at a slightly higher body fat. And this is something that might come into the whole um, each mini cut buying you less time. I think in some instances you can almost find that you can extend each mini cut a little bit potentially and it buy you the same amount of time. So where you might have a three week mini cut, then you might have a four to five week mini cut and you might have a five to six week mini cut and that buys you the same sort of three to four mesocycles of massing potentially. But again, you're gonna to get to a point where you're gonna to have to do an extended cut eventually. Um, I think I answered your questions. I can't remember if I answered them all there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think you did. Yeah, so kind of the longest uh, you would go without any mini cuts would be like four or so months. And then when you get to the point where you can't even go for as long as like two months without a mini cut, then maybe you maintain or actually do like a more extended cut. Did I get that right more or less? Yeah, for, for me personally, that that's spot on. Um, for some of my clients, I won't put them through mini cuts if I don't think it's appropriate for them. Um, they'll be explained because oftentimes they'll be like, yeah, let's do a mini cut. And I'll be like, are you sure? You've got this, this, this going on. Let's just go for a period of maintenance. And sometimes it's a maintenance phase and then we just go back into massing. Uh, and then sometimes it's, yeah, maintain and then go through an extended cut that's less aggressive. It definitely depends. But for me personally, you are spot on with that. Awesome. Cool. So um, I want to, I'm going to use the V word, which is a uh, volume. <laughs> so um, how do you, how do you like to structure a volume for yourself personally for, for training? Like um, how much do you progress volume within a mesocycle or like, do you increase sets per week? Um, is that auto-regulated in some fashion? Um, and sort of what ranges do you move in between? Like how big of a gap uh, do you experience at any given time between the least amount of volume that you can progress on and the most amount of volume you can progress on? Like how does that play out for you? Cool. So yeah, volume, the, yeah, the V, I was like, what's the V word? Is this going to be like... Vendetta. Uh, I can't think what another V word would be. Voldemort, that's the one. Oh, Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm talking about volume, I mean, oh, well, I, I guess the listeners and you, yourself would mean basically for hypertrophy, I think number of hard sets. I think Greg Nichols kind of popularized that. And I think that's a great way to just think about things within a certain repetition range kind of five up to, I guess, 30. I don't tend to do repetitions up to that high, but um, th that seems to be a good way to talk about it. But for me personally, uh, it's a constant assessment. Uh, like you rightly said, uh, I like the volume landmarks that Mike produced because they really make you think about what you're doing. And they really make you think about, am I getting a response from my training? Am I getting too much of a response? How tired am I? Uh, can I progressively overload next week? These are things that I think every trainee, especially who's more intermediate going on advanced, should be thinking about for themselves. And these are the questions I ask my question, questions I ask my clients a lot of the time is, how fatigued did a particular muscle group feel within a se session? Did it feel challenged? Because that also makes you think about my muscle connection. That also makes you think about the particular movement you're doing. Um, it makes you think about fatigue. It makes you think about where can I go in terms of what's my like, maximal adaptive volume, that sort of thing. So for me personally, always constantly assessing every single week. How am I recovering? How are my results going? How's performance? How do I feel like that connection is with that muscle group? Um, so for what I do, I still think I'm in a, a really great position in terms of I am able to have a relatively decent gap between my minimum effective volume and my maximum recoverable volume. I think I am relatively advanced, not super advanced, but I'm relatively advanced. But the reason I can have a gap between them is because I do have the ability to be incredibly selfish about things like I don't have kids, I can sleep through the night, I can really make that as like, I'd be silly if I wasn't getting eight hours of sleep a night. I have control over my work hours, I don't have kids, 
like Steve should be getting decent sleep if he cares about what he's doing. So I can take control of recovery. I can take control of nutrition. I stay at home. I cook my own meals. I have like all the time in the world that I want for that really. Um, it's very rare that I can't take control of that element. So my stresses generally should be relatively low on, in that regard. So my recovery is really good from that regard. And I'm able to split my sessions into AM and PM sessions. It was an actual game changer changing from, um, I used to have AM and PM sessions for my upper body. So I do like the compound movements and then the assistance movements in the evening. So that might be like bench presses and then tricep isolation work, delt isolation work in the evening. But for my legs now, I actually do like quads and then hamstrings. And that's been a game changer because now I can demolish both in a single day. It's very tiring, but now I can get so much higher quality and more potential volume because I've got that spread. This is often why like novices go from three days a week and they have to go to four to five to six potentially because to get in the amount of volume they need to grow, they need to spread it out more. Um, and by going to AM and PM, I'm able to widen that gap. But that doesn't change my minimum effective volume, the least I need to grow. So my first week, sometimes the AM and PM sessions can be very short, which is sometimes I find myself doing too much and I push too hard, um, which can bite me in the ass later on. But what I do is really focus on that first week and being very, very honest with myself and thinking about and sometimes auto-regulating within a session. How challenged has that muscle group been? How well am I getting a certain degree of a pump? Days afterwards, day after chest day, is my chest feel like it was trained? Do I feel at all sore or um, like there's a twinge there at all? Or do I feel completely fresh? Uh, and there could be multiple reasons and you have to be very honest with yourself and think, is my form up to scratch? Uh, is that movement a good movement for me? You need to have all of these outlined and in place. You have to have your relative intensity in place. You have to be at least training at three to four reps of reserve, I think. And that to be challenging. If you're doing that and you think it's not challenging in the slightest, then I think you probably aren't pushing as hard as you think you are. Have all of that in check. And then in that week, have an honest assessment of those markers. Am I getting any pump in that muscle group? Was that muscle group challenged? Did I feel like the next days it was at all kind of fatigued? And I'm trying to get a baseline assessment of ticking off two of those and being like, okay, that's probably minimum effective volume. And that's a constant assessment in that first week. And then from there on, if things are progressing well, I will add dot in sets here or there. I tend to add potentially between one to maybe up to four sets per muscle group. So it might just be one set for my quads. I just add an extra set of squats if my quads feel well recovered and they're not lagging soreness and performance is going really well. And I feel like that is a, a good decision to make. I will do that. But for something like delts, I find actually my minimum effective volume can be quite low, but they can handle a lot more if I want them to. Um, and it depends on exercises that I'm doing. It depends on how my recovery been, has been realistically. Have I got good sleep or not? What's my nutritional protocols at the time? Am I in a good surplus or am I just coming out of a mini cut? Am I still a bit fatigued? And I'll constantly auto-regulate that. So I will add sets where I am recovered and can perform well with that. Um, but I won't add them just for the sake of it. And I have probably done that a little bit too excessively in the past where again like I talked about in my 2014 to 17 off season where I didn't really understand the fundamentals when I first learned about potentially adding sets I was under the impression maybe a little bit too much that more was better and so I just like add them in and I just be like oh I can just like do another set and I'd end up getting junk volume there whereas right now I'm very very careful to add because I know how junk volume is just not productive and I know that Week one, I've achieved minimum effective volume. Anything here is a bonus. So I don't just add for the sake of adding. So yeah, I will tend to progress through a three reps in reserve to four reps in reserve week one. Very unlikely I hit a four reps in reserve and also sort of incredibly conservative or 
I don't know what could have happened. I, I just very rarely train that easy on myself. And then I'll progress through reps and reserve. It will just come down as a consequence of load being micro-loaded for the most part. And um, I don't tend to add like five kilos. It will be as small an increment as I can for the most part when I'm going through a mes cycle and stick within a repetition range. And I'll add sets where I feel recovered. Um, and at the moment, um, and I had a consultation with Mike to see what he thought about this. I'm not doing any specialization mesocycles. I'm focusing on full body hypertrophy. I think I'll probably get into a case in the near future where I'll start having to focus on body parts because I've kind of got to my limit in terms of I'm doing AM and PM. I'm training six days per week. I can't really maximize my maximal recoverable volume anymore. If I want things to grow to their best potential, I'm probably going to have to start specializing in future. But at the moment, that's my setup. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are curious in terms of specific numbers as to how high you climb up the volume letters. But i kind of reluctant to ask you about that because I just know how irrelevant that is. <laughs> uh, you know, like I talked to Mike Isratel not that long ago and he said that his maximal recoverable volume for his chest, for example, is somewhere around 10 sets, which like I don't think a lot of people would expect that from someone like Mike. And, you know, for someone else who is much smaller than Mike, it could be like 30 sets. So it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, but maybe just for a fun fact, like what's, what's the highest number of sets that you do for, for whatever, any, any given muscle group, like what's the highest that you ever had to go, go for? It's really funny you ask that because I think a lot of people expect me to have like specific numbers off the top of my head. Um, but because of the way I train and I auto-regulate, I tend to go through a mesocycle, not with an MRV in mind. I tend to let MRV come to me. So what that means is I find my minimum effective volume and I progress through a mesocycle and then wherever MRV hits, it hits. And so I don't necessarily need to know and I'm not necessarily very aware of it. What I do know is um, for things like my delts, they can be very high. I think I, I could probably have pushed higher than I've pushed in previous times. It just seems to be a bit ridiculous at times especially when you're doing potentially machine movements it just seems to be that they can just keep flipping going um, for my abs and for my calves again it just seems to be more of just me being systemically fatigued more than those muscle groups being fatigued so those i mean and just psychological reluctance to do more than like 20 sets for my abs it's just like really i just <laughs> don't want to train them that much but they could easily get into um, 20 and beyond um, same for calves um, a lot of the time they can just take an absolute battering, a ridiculous amount of volume. But I tend to find that my back and my chest land close to 25, um, normally between 20 and 25. And my um, hamstrings and my quads, they'd be lucky if they get to 20. Um, they tend to be closer to between 15 and 20 sets. And then for smaller muscle groups like the delts, um, my calves, my abs, they could probably go to 25 to 30, um, potentially beyond that, but I just haven't really pushed beyond that. Um, and then but biceps and triceps, they both seem to be able to handle a very similar amount of volume. They're both similar to um, chest and um, back, but actually probably closer to the 15, actually no, more similar to legs um, in that they're probably closer to 15 to 20. My biceps, yeah, they can't actually take as much volume as other, a lot of people can take a ton of volume on biceps. I just can't. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, so, um, so I just want to pick up on something that you mentioned earlier, which is that you separate your uh, sessions into two. So you have AM and PM sessions. So I would be really curious, like how do you, 
how do you structure that? Like you don't have to go through like specific workouts. It's like, and then I do incline bicep curls and then I do whatever cable curls, but like, uh, like how in terms of muscle groups and in terms of isolation and compound, like, um, first of all, how many sessions do you have a week? Like how many training days do you have? And thereby, I guess, how many sessions do you have? And then how do you structure your training in terms of separating them with uh, muscle groups and uh, intensities and such things? Cool. Uh, yeah, it's probably something I should do a post on a little bit more concretely because a lot of people are asking me about it. The reason I don't really want to do it or the reason I haven't talked too much about it, um, at least in a formal sense, is because I know realistically not many people can do it. And I know realistically for most people it isn't something they should even really consider. I'm very fortunate in that my gym is literally a five-minute walk down the road uh, and it's a 24-hour gym. So it, well, not that that makes a difference because I train during the day. But I and I can train at non-busy times, so I control my schedule. It's it's something that's very convenient for me. So it's almost like if I didn't do an AM and PM session, it'd be like, well, why not? <laughs> it it kind of makes sense. And I'm at a point in my training advancement where I can split my sessions to AM and PM, and they both are sessions. Um, whereas if you're a novice, you do an AM and PM session, you're like in and out in like ten minutes both sessions. It just doesn't really make much sense. So I just want to say that as kind of a disclaimer. But for me. For the most part, it is compound movements in the AM and then isolation movements in the PM. That tends to be how it goes. So for today, it was a pull day. So I've done my vertical pulling, horizontal pulling movements in the AM. And then I'll come in the PM and I will do like my delt movements. So things like rear delt flies, or upright rows, uh, maybe some traps. And I'll do biceps and maybe some abs and calves. So that's how it tends to go. I train abs and calves four times per week. I'm actually probably going to increase that to six times per week because they just tend to be recovered all the time, as I said before. Um, I'm going to trial that and then I'm just going to be like, I might just throw the towel because they're just aggravate me a lot. Although I do think I've developed some more ab thickness, uh, which I do definitely need to for my bodybuilding goals. And then in terms of biceps, I train those four times per week. Delts are trained four times per week. Um, smaller muscle groups more frequently. Um, and then for my... Um, Leg workouts, they are split quads and hamstrings. So I have a, a quad dominant day and a hamstring dominant day, and that's really just whichever one's trained first, they take priority. So my hamstring dominant day looks like deadlifts, Romanian deadlifts, and then um, I normally do my calves and traps. And then I'll come in the PM and I'll do a less overloading variety of quad. So I call that like a leg press, a machine, um, a Smith machine squat. I'd call a, uh, any squat free weight variety kind of more overloading. It's more kind of fatiguing, more axial loading. So I tend to do that in the PM with then abs and maybe I have some kind of um, bicep work or something there. So that's how that will look. So for the most part, I'm training. Um, I would love to train 12 times per week, basically. That would be the outline. But for the most part, it looks like 11 sessions per week because one of those sessions lands on the weekend, typically a Saturday. And quite oftentimes I'm being... A good human and being social and not being obsessed fully by bodybuilding and engrossed by it so i will be social and so i combine that session into a single one which is normally a pull um, which is manageable uh, and i just have to be aware of that uh, because it can get out of control if i end up doing it split and then end up trying to combine it later on it gets very difficult which I, i'm a little bit anxious about christmas coming because i'm not going to be at home with a five minute walk to a gym i'm going to be at home home with my parents and have to drive to a gym and I don't think I'm going to be able to split my sessions and I'm already into a mesocycle so it'll be interesting to try and do especially a leg session uh, but yeah that, that's how it generally looks sorry
Awesome. So I, I understand well that you have uh, two lower body sessions and one of them is quad dominant and the other one is uh, hamstring dominant and then the rest is like upper body split up into uh, two sessions um, and one is compound and the other one is isolation dominant. Do I understand that correctly? So yeah, from a, a global scale, it will look like a legs push pull split. Um, so legs push pull, <coughs> legs push pull, legs push pull off. That's how it will look from a global level. Obviously, like calves and like smaller muscle groups are dotted in more frequently. So it's not quite perfectly legs push pull, but that is basically. Awesome. Um, and then my very last uh, also self-serving question, which I actually wanted to ask you uh, in one comment or maybe even in a private message or something, but how, like what exercises do you do for your abs and uh, how do you, like what is your system for training them? Because uh, like you, I'm also team no abs. So yeah, like I, I'm also like, um, even when I get down to single digit body fat, like when I flex in good lighting, I have some sick ab definition, but if I don't flex, I look like borderline untrained, um, on the midsection, uh, compartment. So like, yeah, how do you go about app training? So yeah, it's, it's not a good team to be part of at all. It's so upsetting team, no abs, team, no carbs. They're two of the most like morally demising if that's just yeah they're just horrible teams to be within so I, I feel for you about it's not fun um because abs and calves are not really very fun to train and both of them you're i i think you're fairly limited to the amount of exercises you can really do uh both of them you're just looking for some sort of flexion obviously with abs you can do planks you can do isometric movements you can do paloff presses these are really great core stabilization movements they're not so great for thickening your abs in any sort of way um, so I very much rely on flexion movement. So that's really allowing my spine to extend, getting a nice stretch as best I can on the abdominals, keeping my lip, hips very much locked in, not allowing my hip flexors to take over because you know, basically everyone who trains abs, that's what ends up what happening, uh, ends up happening. And then, yeah, flexing over and really crunching. Uh, so any movements that allow me to do that. So something like uh, cable, cable crunches can work very well. Decline um, crunches can work really well. They're, they're horrible and tiring, but they can work very well. Um, machine crunches, if you have a gym, like I went to a gym the other day that had like four different machine crunch varieties, and I was just like, this would be great for me, but um, not every gym has those. So these are the movements I'm relying on. I think leg raises, I think um, ab rollouts and things, they can be great, uh, but they're just so difficult to overload. And so I very much rely on machine-based movements for my abs because you can actually incrementally overload those with weight, which most of those other movements, it just becomes really difficult to. So yeah, that's how I tend to do it. And yeah, just take them through the same progressions of minimum effective volume up to maximum recoverable volume as best I can. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, good points. And pretty much along the lines of my experience, one one tip that I can give for people is using a cable stack and putting putting those little... Um, I don't even know what those are called, but the, the straps that people use to attach to their legs when they're doing glute kickbacks, attaching those to your legs and uh, doing lying leg raises that way uh, can work really well and you can overload it really effectively. Um, oh, cool. So yeah, that's something I've been experimenting with lately. Cool, man. I uh, asked you basically all my questions. So um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um yeah, I don't really have any kind of wrap-up question. Uh, so yeah, just let people know where they can find you and any kind of resources you would like them to check out. No, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about and um, I hopefully people have taken something away from this chat. If people want to reach out, uh, like you said, um, they can definitely check out the podcast if they haven't listened to that before, the Revive Stronger podcast over on YouTube 
any podcast provider. If they want to reach out to me directly, best is Instagram. Facebook, I'm kind of fleetingly on there, but I try and avoid it where I can and just do my uh, team revive work over on there. Um, so yeah, check me out over on Instagram, tr- chuck me a DM or if they want to, uh, and I'll reply to them over there. And then the, the website revivestronger.com, if they just Google Revive Stronger, they'll be able to find everything that they want. So yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Abel. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. It was an absolute pleasure. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Burge Fuggerly. This program not only contains a 12-week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. And besides this, you will also be getting some really awesome bonuses like Burger Fuggerly's Myo Reps and Zero Carb ebook. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.